Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today was a former writer at Valve for over 12 years. He is now the CEO and co-founder of Stray Bombay and currently working on a game, Anacrusis. 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 My apologies. I know that naming things are hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was only after Eric actually said that he liked the name that I was comfortable that we'd do a weird name. So how long you want something it... people you want people that people that something they can pronounce and they can they know how to spell it and like right it's all of that but equally it's like we're a 70s sci-fi game right and so um sci-fi in particular has so many titles taken from all the pulp fiction day uh, pulp science fiction days right where right you know light years away and every galaxy something's been taken so we just wanted a strange word but yeah it was familiar and it's in the dictionary so Oh, is it? Because I've never even yeah, heard Anacrusis of that word. is like the beats before song starts. It's like the little, little bit lead in, which kind of matters. Oh, right. Which there is a dance band, a British dance band um, that had a song, uh, Faded Flowers, um, that I really liked. And oh. it had the line, um, this is the Anacrusis, the main, the main uh, fight remains or something like that. Um, yeah. And so that was that was the the impetus for it. But yeah, yeah. So, as a writer, do you read the dictionary a lot to try and learn big words? No. <laughs> oh, except uh, I have the big dictionary of slang, which is they they only did the first two volumes, so it's like A through F and F through O or something, and that's a good book just to randomly grab um, words from. Uh-huh. Uh, no, no, a hundred years ago, I took 12 years of classical music. So um, I, that's where I know it from. Right. But, no, right. but, the, but, the, but the big book of uh, the big book of slang is a really good book. I mean, I mean, it's American slang, so you'll get less value out of it, maybe. But, but it's, it's pretty funny. But when it's a, it's a serious document, to be clear, it's not a joke book. It's a serious like etymology of slang. But doesn't slang evolve over time? So wouldn't it become... Yes obsolete after sure some of the words would be and it doesn't have a bunch of the words that needs to be in there I mean, but that's kind of all dictionaries right but it's a capture of time right okay so do you try and stay up with new slang no you're, you're beyond that point <laughs> i have no idea what the kids are talking about when i see um a couple like when i see three letters in a text i often have to go search to see like oh okay yeah all right you're i know like i know you're on, you're on your way i know that one but like right there's a lot of just uh i have no idea what anyone's talking about half the time which i've never have so that's okay mm. so do so your name chit Felisic, does that yes. have any meaning like your surname because it's an interesting surname well no so um my family is polish Right. So you would really pronounce, well, and when they were coming over, they Americanized the name. So really it's Filzeki. Um, ah, Filzeki. would be, and there is actually a couple like still in Poland. Um, but yeah, so uh, it, we just say Falisak. My one sister actually remo removes the Z in her business card just so people can pronounce it easier because the Z scares them. But be Filzek. Oh, okay yeah interesting so how many how many people actually know that my Just name close, or well yeah do they know that about your surname or only people close to you you know i don't i don't think so the, the just i have the one the one advantage of all of it is that um 
I have a unique name. So if I smash my name together and I go on Twitter, I know that name's going to be there. Or there's somebody impersonating me, yep. which is both good and bad. Cause that means, um, when my mother is still alive, she could, um, search on Google for me. Yeah. And anything she found was, was me, um, which, um, yeah, there's, there, there were, there, there's some things I had to explain to her. Mm. I wanted to ask you about your, your first day at valve or being approached by Gabe because it was, it was, it was quite random. It came out of the blue, wasn't it? Was it an email or a phone call? No. So, um, me and Eric had stopped updating, um, old man Murray back then. Yeah. That was the website we had. That's right. And then one, one day Eric called me. He's like, check your email, check your email. I'm like, I'm checking my email. I was like, no, 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 no. Go. Cause we had stopped checking our emails because they're just filled with spam. Right. <laughs> so no, 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 check the old man Murray email. And I'm like, Oh shit. It's a email from Gabe saying, you know, you want to come to valve. And then we're like, can you explain more? And he's like, Nope, just come on out here. So is he, is he a blunt guy in terms of, in terms of that aspect? Just like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you information. You have to come here first. Well, so later I would learn, especially in email. Um, he's very, very much like you could, you could lay out a budget for $5 million on something and be all detailed and his response would just be yes. Right. Like there's, there's no discussion about it. Um, it's, it's both good and bad. I got, I got really used to it. And now I, as somebody who runs a company, I've been told that often I'm too cryptic and I need to be more verbose so people can understand the contextualizing around it. But for me and Gabe, it was great. I loved that quick and short. And also the man answers a gajillion emails a day. Right. And he actually answers all of them. And so to do that, the only way you can do that, I think is being super cryptic. So, mm. yeah, no, he was, he's super straightforward on that. So, Good so, yeah, so we, we, we then flew out to the Seattle. And you thought you were going to get fired after the first day, didn't you? Oh, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, <laughs> they had high, I think, I don't know. I can't remember now what Eric's covered or not. So I'm just going to recover. Uh, there was a different group inside of uh, um, Valve that was doing some more narrative kind of based stuff. And that's, like they weren't sure if they should hire us directly into that or over in the valve. And they went, you know, just hired us in the valve, but working with that group. And it was like the first day we got the, hey, this is kind of the story idea. And I think, I can't remember now if we woke up and did it in the morning or we stayed up that night, but we rewrote the whole thing. We recreated like a two hour movie on our first day. And they're just what? like, they're like, wow, that's a lot of work. Um, yeah, this is like two hours worth of content. We're not going to do this. And we're like, oh God, we have no idea what we're doing. We're just being idiots. Uh, that was pretty funny still though. Uh, I, I, Eric cracks me up. So anytime I can, I can push him to write something is a good day. Cause that means that I'm going to be laughing. And that was definitely, it was funny, but um, yeah, not something they use. Cause what's the push and pull aspect between you two, the dynamic that you have. So is he trying to do the same to you as to what you do to him in terms of trying to promote something funny to come out of them i I don't know if it's ever that thought out per se um i mean definitely like in the old man murray days when we were sitting next to each other in an office where the only thing was trying to get each other to laugh i mean sometimes i'm less of a writer room writer Hmm. i very much more like to go dwell on stuff and so a lot of times it would just be getting really wound up the night before because i in in the on that website i was like the lunkhead kind of crazy angry dude and it's hard to do that some days. Like you kind of got to get yourself wound up uh, to really just be incoherently raging. 
Um, and so like to do that would be on my own, but then it, he would see it that, you know, that day and be like, Oh, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm going to do this with this or whatever. And so, yeah. Ah. And was there much weight of expectation in terms of doing Half-Life 2? Because Mark laid law, laid such a great groundwork, I suppose, for you guys. So well, for you so to come was, in here and try and meet the expectation. Well, so originally, remember, we were going to write for the, we weren't even going to write for the game stuff at that point. It was going to be for this narrative stuff that lived in the Half-Life universe. And Mark was super open and supportive. And then we we'd talked with Mark a bunch before then, right? Mm. And so he had always been, and there's actually a group of people um, like Bill Van Buren and Bill Fletcher who had also contributed kind of to the story and stuff. And they were all super welcoming and great and just being like, don't know how this is going to work out, but let's just talk and figure it out. And so, you know, that was, that was super helpful. Mm. In terms of- but, I mean, so, oh, oh, wait, so, oh, sorry, I didn't answer your question. So to answer your original question, there was no wait because- we were doing our stuff and we didn't ever think it was going to see the light of day. So what did it matter? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. In terms of uh left for dead, because I find with zombie stuff is your, you're kind of confined to a certain cliche with, with any type of zombie narrative, right? You have to have a virus, an outbreak of some kind and all those people. So when you were writing left for dead, um, was it ever challenging to try and think of some original concept? Well, so not really, because at the time, I mean, at the time, you know, there, there once I went to dinner with Gabe and he was beating me up that um, if you look at zombie movies, he's like Night of the Living Dead's about racism, Day of the Dead's about, uh, or Dawn of the Dead's about consumerism, um, like these, you know, the, uh, what's his face that purposely made those movies about things and kind of like to talk about them. And he's like, you know, what is, what is your movie about? you know, what is your game about? What's your zombie story about? And I'm like, well, you know, it's about working together. It's, it's the game itself. It's the reflection of the game mm. of, you know, in the zombie apocalypse, what are you going to do? Um, and then, you know, it would kind of get pushed more and more. Cause I remember he's just like, well, let's not, let's not do zombies. Zombies are, zombies are just cheesy, right? They're just really cheesy. And at the time you did not have like the walking dead TV series and all of this. Right. So mm. it was very cheesy, but as a kid who saw Dawn of the Dead at a midnight movie and was just like terrified, um, it wasn't cheesy to me. I had no idea those scenes were cheesy until like watching them later. And you're like, oh yeah, man, that is that is camp. Um, so I was just like, well, why don't we just take that the characters in the world don't, they characters in the world, some of the characters in the world are aware that they're in a zombie movie essentially, right? Like um, Zoe and Lewis understand that like, oh my God, this is the thing of movies. Um, but they play it seriously and they take it seriously. Mm. And it's kind of like uh, just uh, the Anacrusis, we do the same thing as like early 70s, late 60s sci-fi is very campy, very cheesy. But if you just take that as serious and you have those characters inhabit that world and play it for the serious, then it just has a different feel to it. And I think you transcend that campiness and cheesiness. Right. But did the story stay pretty much the same from the get-go or was it constantly changing? throughout um so one of the things i'd like to do for something like that is there's a whole backstory that we've never shared out that goes on like where it got formed and how it propagated originally and all of this and because that's just in the background so that when you're talking about something you have that thing behind you but since 
and this is a really important thing for me is since it wasn't anybody's virus, it wasn't like Zoe's virus. Like Zoe wasn't like, I caused this virus. Now I need to go save everybody. Instead, they were just caught up like you would be caught up in it. Mm. That information didn't always have to be correct or line up to that because clearly we've seen uh, in modern day uh, disinformation sometimes is purposely done and sometimes it's just done because you're using shorthand or you're excited or whatever. And so really wanted to play with that. So never surfacing what that underlying was, but having that underpinning. And that stayed the same. Um, the why they didn't get it and the, um, you know, and some of like that kind of thing, I think probably got tightened up over time. Like we thought, oh, this is the device we can use now. Like, you know, why? Because we always had this, like, why aren't they dying? But it literally wasn't until like Left 4 Dead 2 that it was like this really clear thing of like, hey, you're, you can't be infected, you're immune to it and what that means. And so like the final chopper scene, when you're talking to the chopper pilot, like there's, this is being told, I think for the first time in the game, probably. And that then becomes in the comic book and we take it everywhere else. But that's, so that was there, but we just hadn't really ever used it. And once you use something and you start talking about it, that's then when you start getting kind of more information on it and you kind of internally start having a better understanding of what it is. Yeah, that, that, makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. But with everything that we've lived through in terms of COVID, if you could go back and redo the the story, would that would you do it differently based on living through an actual virus? Obviously, without zombies, but well, there'd be there'd be more masks. Um, <laughs> there would be yeah, you know, I think some of the probably the language that we would have put into the world would have been different, but the overall, not really, because I still think you know you see that I think. If you look at like so like the original Left 4 Dead, um, that world is really one of a lot of not knowing at all, and we're we're really kind of lost entirely. And then Left 4 Dead 2, we kind of start with essentially FEMA, we end with the military, and that was like kind of like trying to show the different possible responses. And I mean, I think if if this virus had been more contagious and more deadly, um you know, would it have turned into the kind of the military thing? I think you could start seeing where it could have, right? You could see the raising of pensions. You could see the anger. You could see the weird being a patriot for wearing a mask and being a patriot for not wearing a mask and how divisive people were and like all of that stuff, I think you see over time coming out. And so I think we would definitely have played into that. Um, but I still think the the overall kind of how it went worked pretty well. Yeah. So when you're writing a story, in the back of your mind, are you thinking about the possibility of it leading into a sequel? Like with a with a, a game franchise, whether it was Half-Life or Portal or Left 4 Dead, or you just focus on the game being a complete package? Or also, is there little Easter eggs possibly that you, you're thinking where you could take it? So, so the original Left 4 Dead definitely did not have the it both had not thinking of the sequel and not tying it up into a tight bow of where they were going, except the idea that maybe if they were landing in the military that you felt better about that. But then of course we see in the comic and stuff, yeah. but it was definitely then through the DLC that followed it, that we started to be like, okay, let's map this out. Like, this is the interesting way to go. This is what can happen. At that point, we'd also knew Left 4 Dead 2. We wanted to follow a second set of survivors. And then we wanted to have them meet up because thinking about like all the NPCs you meet in the world, you have no backstory on them, you have no understanding. So what would it be like to meet NPCs that you actually knew? 
and you had this backstory to them. Like you don't get to do that very often. And so that was a fun thing. And like that was planned out a little bit. And then we had really been talking about for a while at the company um, about, uh, you know, killing, killing characters and what that's like. Right. And so obviously spoiler in a half-life two episode two, if you get to the end, someone doesn't make it. Um, but uh, you know, we wanted to do the same kind of thing in love for dead where there was something and um, we we're trying to figure out the best way to do it. And actually it was Gabe who was just like, you should kill the character you like the most um, because that will resonate the most. I mean, that was a shorthand. It was more complex. Better said. Uh, and so for Bill to me, for, for me, Bill was uh, a, a character I really loved. There's a lot of his lines are uh, Eric knows my father and my uncle um, and they speak alike and they speak a lot like Bill, like the go pound salt and all of those kind of things are, are like, you know, lines my dad would yell. So, so we killed Bill. Um, and so we like, we have those kind of things understood and set and kind of they're like laid out a little bit, but a lot of it other is just as you're doing it and, and going, um, you just take it from there. And I mean, as with anything, uh, they get in the helicopter, they get in the plane, they get in the ATV, they get in the military vehicle, that doesn't mean they got safe, right? Like th those games are always like, all we need to do is go up this elevator. Oh shit, the elevator's out. All we need to do is, right? And so it's, you can always, I think I think players are comfortable with that. Mm. So out of all the games that you wrote for at Valve, was there a particular one that was the most challenging? Most challenging. Maybe you just found it hard to write the story or the, the dialogue or well, um, whatever it was. Okay, so, Challenging. There's two ways it was challenging. One was um, so Portal Two. I did the co-op, and mm. I didn't want to work on Portal Two because at that point I had worked on Episode One, Orange Box, so that you know all of everything in there. Left for Dead One, Left for Dead Two. I just wanted some time off, and so I would just kick around with Jay and Eric. But they did this the the single player story, and they were doing a a, a co-op. You know the co-op side as well. Right. And they'd gotten behind on it, and it kind of gotten into a weird spot. And uh, I, they're like, hey, can you meet? I think it's like, like, can you meet Monday? And I'm like, oh, sure, sure. And then I'm like, hey, I can't meet Monday. I got to go to the vet. Found out my cat had cancer. Like cats, my, my company's named after cats. Stray Bombay's, Bombay's a breed of cats. Hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, this sucks. And so I came in the next day and they're like, hey, can you just do the co-op uh, story? I'm like, I am not in the mood to be funny or wanting to do this at all. And it was the best therapy because it was pretty much a week of uh, just sitting in a room and cracking me up. Uh, Jay and Eric are both hilarious. So it was like the best therapy. And then we just made the, we just made the agreement. We would share what we were working with each other, but we would never comment. Like we would never be like, like we knew that they wouldn't be the exact same. They would be their own thing. So that's fine. We're not gonna get caught up that they're a little bit different than each other, right? Yeah. So makes GLaDOS is slightly different. And she's talking to a robot, so it makes sense she's slightly different, right? And yeah. And the whole thing was I would only do it if I could if I could the, the end joke that I had in my head um would be okay as the ending. And that was that essentially you're leading these two robots to kill the remainder people on Earth. And so as you know, Armageddon was was the payoff for the for the game. And was that always? <laughs> was that always? That's comedy gold, man. Yes. Well, Extermination if it's done right. Extermination of the human race. If it's done right. 
Um, was that always set in stone though, or did it change a lot? Because I know with the actual uh, single player with Portal Two, um, they obviously a lot of the design kept changing, so then they'd have to go back and rework. Things. That was that was the first thing. That was the first. That was the first thing. That was set in stone. And then it was like, how do we get there? And that's you know, if you remember, you find the the discs. Yeah. Um, and that came, and then it was became, how do we think of these different tracks? And then I went and did research on like um, training and like essentially they're all different training tracks, but like mental training tracks. So some are about confusion, some are about like, I don't remember God, this many years later, exactly what they all were, but it was like, I I'd use this idea of theming them um, that way. Right. And then, then that worked. And then both, you know, Left 4 Dead 1 and 2 were just both hard for, um, I was also the project lead on that. So spending just a lot of time on the game itself let alone the writing. And that just is a lot of time and a lot of um, a lot of work. And sometimes that would be hard. And a lot of those, a lot, lot of that game, especially I think two, probably more than even one, is me sitting in a hotel room, drinking beer, writing the night before a recording session or like getting, Jay and Eric also wrote on those as well, right? And so like, I try to formulate all of those, but there'd be just a bunch of like, they're working on other stuff. They don't know the, hey, we created this new thing and now we we have melee weapons and now we need to create all these melee combat lines or whatever, right? So they don't know that. They, they can tell the story stuff, but that other stuff, like I just need to go do. And so I'd just be sitting in a hotel room like the night before, just pumping that out. And the actors would be, you know, asking when they get their scripts and be like, the day before, are you crazy? <laughs> um, well, the thing is, because you do mention it, but like, obviously you are a writer, but you wore a lot of hats at Valve. You weren't just a writer, right? But yeah. was that always the case? Did you always know that that was going to be the case that you're going to end up doing a lot of different work or did you was it sold to you or pitched by Gabe that like hey you're just going to be a writer I uh, no so early like I think our second day there like they're like just walk down the hall and do whatever you want and you'll make everything better and you're like oh, that's <laughs> that's crazy talk these are really smart people here oh uh, but I mean they kind of mean it um and so like the very first thing I did at Valve was I complained that I really liked the game David Defeat Source we were playtesting it internally I'm like the website sucks and uh, Greg Coomer's just like, well, why don't you just go do the website then? <laughs> and so with Q, uh, the graphic designer, we just redid the website. Um, so yeah. Simple as that. Yeah, during the orange box, um, the PlayStation was being done kind of out of house. The um, Xbox was being done in house. And I was the first person who was like playing the full if you remember, it also had like Half-Life in it and Half-Life Half yeah. 2 in it and everything else. So I was the first person playing through that on the Xbox and playing like uh, a bunch of that stuff. Uh, and I realized that we just were not going to hit Q&A. Like we had no idea what certification was and like, oh my God, were we failing? And like, like every, like I was playing at the QA manual, like the certification manual, I'm like we are failing everything. So I uh, went with John Morello, uh, one of the animators and we we're both like, we've got to fix this. And so we just took over QA and essentially um, grabbed everybody's dev kit out of their offices, put them in the hallway and started running this QA process. Cause Morello is super, I am not detail oriented. I, I can try all my life, I never will be. He was, and so together we just kind of created this kind of testing plan. And I mean, that's not right, like that's, to me, that's the fun thing at Valve. You see a problem, you act like it's your company and how do you solve this? Well, I'm just gonna go do this. and. 
I mean, the orange box. Yeah, we I, I also did not help with crunch. I I, I made it worse because uh, we were just having people testing twenty four seven. It was just like out in the hallways, food carts, food being brought over. Like it was, it was a, it was a bit crunchy. It wasn't forever like it wasn't like bong but like to get it out the door that was very um crunchy and very much needed that focus but it was also the fun thing because you know you saw everybody pulling together and working together as a team and understanding you know like hey we can't just all keep playing um tf2 against each other we have to test these other games and yeah yeah, so, so, so I've always done a lot of different things there like I mean I went and did biz dev with VR and worked with the developers on that as well and stuff. So yeah, I like, I like that you can mix up your job like that. So have you tried to keep the same sort of work culture as Valve at Stray Bombay? Because well, obviously no Valve crunch. has a very unorthodox approach in terms of its development. On well, so Valve doesn't, crunch, Valve doesn't crunch or crunch like we used to at least. Um, so I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it was influenced by that, but there's a different scale, right? There's a different way you have to think about your company at 350 than you have at 20. You know, cool. even, yeah, like, yeah. even like the flat hierarchy worked really well on like episode one, where the flat hierarchy didn't work well when we had three teams doing different things, right? Like you started needing to have leads be a little bit more prominent. Excuse me. Um, so like that's always been there. And for, for but the, the underlying idea is that the person who is best to solve the problem and who understands it the best and working on it is the one doing the work and deciding the work versus having like a designer sitting on top, just generating a bunch of paper designs and making engineers go off and do it. Um, it's more of a collaborative process with that. And so we definitely at Stray Bombay have that as well. Mm. Um, we don't have dedicated designers. Everybody is part of the process. I mean, there's people... The uh, guy Ryan does the, the metagame and he designed the metagame, but he's also implementing some of it and as well as coming up with crazy weapons and stuff. And so I always think if somebody's really passionate and excited, you don't know how that expresses itself and it doesn't always express itself in their craft exactly. And sometimes that just may be an idea, maybe a really good idea. And you just want to capture that idea and make sure it's there, right? And so it's like when we were writing, even for the Portal series, it'd always be like, hey, we're going to go off and record a bunch of stuff. Does anybody have things we should be putting in here? Like, does anyone have ideas? Like, always take those ideas and steal them and make them your own. Um, but like, right, but like you should always be collaborative that way. And I think that's the strength of like kind of that valve process. I think people get caught up in the flat and the handbook and like there's a lot of garbage around it that isn't helpful. But that idea of just the people doing the work are kind of in charge of the work and are able to make their own decisions is an important part of it. And that's that's what scales. And inside of the teams, that scales and that works. And that's what we try to do as well. Mm. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of devs now from a lot of different companies, and it seems like narratives online are crap, that it's not truthful at all. But I mean, have, you must have read stuff over the years about misperceptions at Valve and how things are viewed within the company that yes obviously haven't even transpired and that there's you know there's some something ridiculous it's like you know one of them is like oh valve is doesn't like to make games with the number three in it and they don't do anything you know all they do is work on steam which is obviously not the case but um if if, if there's one misperception about valve that you would correct what would it be 
Well, I guess it's also part of the process and it's a thing that people get wrong about the process and it takes a long time to, before it sinks into you. And it's not that um, there are no managers, it's that everybody's your manager. And so we're going to go ship Left 4 Dead 1 and an engineer comes up to me and is like, I think we really should package these as groups of four. We should never sell the game solo. It's only fun with your friends. Um, that's the only way this game's ever gonna be successful. Okay, he has a valid argument that he's making. He's making it from a point of a bunch of information he has, talking about other examples and everything else. And then I have to be able to respond to it. I can't just be like, well, fuck off, you know, right? Like, oh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> no, you can uh, say that. It's fine. Right, right. <laughs> right, like you can't just say that. You have to be like, okay, you have to take that in and go, okay. And so then with that is everybody can give you information. Everyone can give you feedback. Everyone can give you information, but that does not mean you need to act on it. What you need to do is go, okay, why are they saying this? What is their worry? What is their concern? Or is there a valid point here? Or are they right? Right? And I think, I mean, definitely as I've gotten older, I've gotten just way more comfortable with realizing how little I know. Um, I think through various parts of my life, I've thought I've known more than I have. And sometimes that, sometimes that works for you, right? And sometimes it doesn't. Um, but it's, it's there in the, the, best, the best version of Valve has that collaboration where you're being challenged all the time and you're being challenged in a valid way, right? So like Gabe with the story, right? I mean, Gabe is not yelling at me, but he is, he is confronting me in a restaurant that there is no story and how can we make a game with no story? And this is gonna be like a disaster. And if he does, if I don't come up with the story, he's gonna come up with the story. He may come up with the story, you don't wanna know his story. Like, like he's just pushing. And then like a week later, he's doing an interview on some German TV thing and he's repeating the words that I said. And it's just like, okay, he will accept that we disagree because I've, I've valid to him um, defended my position and the reason why we wanna do this. And so, you had to be able to do that. And so it's about communication. And that's why, you know, like communication is always like the best thing to hire for. Because if somebody can talk about the problem and communicate and communicate with their, with their version of what they are seeing to it, it, it's just a hundred times better. It's when you don't have that communication and people are just making shots in the dark and you have no input into it and they have no input to you is when you fail. And so as long as you have that communication and you have that respect for each other to be able to say, okay, I disagree, but yeah, let's go that way. Like that, that's then when it's magical. But how do you deal with that in the case of creatives? Because creatives tend to be a bit more sensitive and take things personally, or they can do. I mean, I know I do at times, but I think I'm a lot better than I used to be. But obviously, um, if you tell somebody that their work sucks, or even if you word it in a better way, some people can be very sensitive to that. Yeah, and first... Um, I think this is one reason why I think sometimes it's easier to work with artists because they've done this process before when they've been through school. If, they have a form, if they've been formally trained, they've mm. gone through school and they've done reviews and they've gotten those critiques where it is brutal to their soul, but yet <laughs> they know that person's right or they learn how to deal with it. Um, and I mean, some part of like, that's one reason why sometimes some people don't fit in, right? is a hard thing of like, you've got to be able to take some feedback. And sometimes it's about training, not training, but like teaching people, hey, that person's allowed to have that opinion. You can ignore it. You don't need to take every piece of data in. You don't need to agree with everything, but everybody should. And you need to also make sure that the other end that, that how that information is expressed has got to be respectful and not just be like, oh, you suck, right? 
like something so in my eyes nothing can be ever cool right because what is cool like explain to me what is what are you reacting to what is the thing because you can't say hey this guy's jacket make it cool like no no what is it what, what is the thing that's vague for? yeah very vague right or this sucks nothing can ever suck um and you i won't accept that as feedback like what is what is the thing that you're saying? What are the, the problems you have with it? Like, is there some part of this that's actually good and you just don't like that part of it? And so one of the things that I think with both at Val's process and at Stray Bombay is it's not efficient. Because it can't be, because efficiency would be being blunt in a horrible phrase, radical candor. Ugh. Uh, it's in, you 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 don't want to be blunt that way, but you want to be you want to be straightforward, right? And you want to be compassionate with the the um, feedback you're giving, and then for when you get the feedback, you always want to assume the best intention, right? This is where you get bad where where you get in this problem with bad feed, with bad feedback. I think is when you assume this person's doing this because they have an agenda that they're trying to get a rise out of me. They are gonna, they're ignoring me. But if you just say, hey, best intention, this person's giving me this feedback. Why are they giving me this feedback? It just goes a long way. And yeah, all that's hard, doesn't always work well. Sometimes it gets a little out of hand. Um, one of the things I think I've gotten better at over the years. Um, so where, you, where, where do you sit in that scale in terms of not taking things personally? If you had to rank yourself out of 10. Oh, I, 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 you can yell at me. You can scream at me. I don't care. It just doesn't bother me. I grew Have up you in a house. That way, though? I grew up in a household that was like that, right? Oh, I grew right. Up, so, okay. My mom's passed. I, I loved my mom, but I mean, like in seventh grade, she's like, "Oh, you're gonna be a failure. You don't know how to do anything." And it was because <laughs> my dresser drawer, my dressers had stuff on them, and we weren't allowed to have stuff on them. It. I knew she didn't mean that. I knew she was just trying to be very clear with her uh, information to me, um, and it just made me laugh. And I mean, all through my life, I think people have learned like yelling at me. You will just. I. I have to choke back smiling. I've been yelled at by a cop once. And I just started laughing and he gets, oh, he's livid. Ah, because that's my reaction. It just makes me laugh that I got you that mad. It just doesn't bother me. Um, so yeah, but that said then, as somebody who now runs a company, I re finding out and realizing that there's a blind spot I have, right? So that if tensions are rising and even if they're not expressing themselves by yelling, which is a really easy thing to see, I don't, I'm not perceptive to that other stuff. It just doesn't bother me. And so with that, um, making sure that other people are protected as well. And we talk about that. We make sure like some better understanding, like, hey, let's, let's, let's have this conversation in a different way or let's take a little break from here. Or hey, if somebody wants to bail out of this, we can now and it's fine. Um, like I've gotten better at that. There's a really good book, um, Nonviolent Communication, um, that helps with nice. kind of how you frame about how you frame about these conversations that removes that. And so if you're in a place of power that you can do that using some of those tools are really helpful. Um, and that's helped me as well. Um, but like the actual, like being negative feedback, it really, I just always figure that it, I'm sure it's my fault and I screw up enough that, you know, let's, let's start there and figure it out from there. And I don't know. <laughs> I know you were uh, deeply impacted by doom when, when you first played that game. So I'm, um, um... Were you ever considering at some point going to Bethesda or id Software to become a writer, or would want to wait, work? Wait, on so that how, how do you, how do you know I was deeply impacted by Doom? Because I read it somewhere, or I heard it in an interview, possibly. We uh, well, we so so when we first got Doom, we were me and Eric, 
uh, and a couple other guys were working in a warehouse in um, a very rough neighborhood in Cleveland, which uh, in Cleveland means something. Um, and the whole rest of the business had left and we got a case of beer, put it between us and then went back to back all computers playing to the middle of the night until we freaked ourselves out to be scared to use the elevator because it, wow. was, it was dark. So it was really fun. I really liked it. But it was also just like, oh my God, this is that feeling and that experience of first person shooter. Like that was the first time I really had that, like, I hate to use the word visceral, but you know, like it just really felt like in the game and in the world. And it was really interesting to me. And I'm like, why are these guys being crucified? I'm angry at you. Whatever <laughs> things I'm fighting, I'm still confused. Um, but so like really like that, Eric and I had at different points thought of making games together and had played around. We had lived together. Um, and stuff and so but that was always out there and around there but really that kind of feeling went for then to writing about games a lot and kind of make you know making jokes around games mm. and that was kind of a natural extension i mean um you know at one point I'd, I'd moved down to new orleans and as a bartender there and one of the great things about being a bartender in a city like new orleans is just it's a convention city um because i was in the, i was in the quarter and so that means every week you have a new group of people come by you, which means you can repeat yourself because they've never heard it before. And you can get really good at your pattern, your jokes. And like, we would actually do magic tricks and stuff. Like we have a whole bunch of stuff we could pull out. You can just do it every week because you can get really good at your craft because it's new people. They haven't seen it. So when the internet first came around, um, I remember thinking, now we can just tell one joke and like millions of people will come by. So we just need one really good joke. And if we have that, we're good. Um, early internet days, people weren't sure how this is all going to work, okay? Um, so it wasn't that bad of an idea. But it was like with that, that we started then writing about games and then realized, oh, yeah, you got to keep updating. Um, kind of, you're pretty bad at updating. Um, but like that was, that, was the, that was the idea then of just doing that. And then it wasn't really, it really wasn't, you know, until later that it was just like, okay, this, this could be a career. This could be something that we do. Um, yeah, but I mean, I always thought about it, but never, I mean, we grew up in Cleveland. There's not a lot of game development happening there, right? It's even like when we started our website, it was like, who's ever going to listen to this? It's just two idiots from Cleveland screaming into the void, right? Yeah. But did you, were you considering moving to another city at any point? Or were you like, no, I love no. it too much here? Uh, I, in Cleveland, I lived in a little village called Bratnall, which is north of Cleveland. Yeah. Um, which means right on Lake Erie, we had a beach, we had giant bonfires, went swimming in the summer every day. Like, no, I, I lived a pretty laid back life. I remember telling Gabe, like, if I take this job, that means I have to put pants on every day. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I was already working for myself. Like, it was, it was a good life. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, because a lot of people don't know that prior to game development, I mean, you did, obviously, you mentioned you're, you were a bartender, but you did painting as well, and you were a data processor. Yeah, at that point, I owned a data processing company and was doing um, affiliate marketing back when it was something small people could do and wasn't overtaken by big companies. Yeah. So all, all those skills that you learned, were you able to transfer any of that into game development? Because painting has nothing to do with game development, obviously. Unless you're painting something, I guess. Uh like a problem all of those all of those all of those things i think influence right so um here for painting i i quickly became a supervisor of painting even though i don't know how to paint but i knew how to communicate to the customer right and so then my team i'd be like you guys do whatever you want i am never gonna get on your backs 
But the owner of the paint company taught me one really important thing. Nobody knows a good paint job from a bad paint job. So what you do is the very first day you find out when those people are coming home from work, because we tend to do these big, giant, rich people's houses, right? So they're coming home at five. You stop painting at four and you clean for an hour. You stack all of your, all of your drops, all of your ladders are perfectly lined up and stacked. They come in and you're not there and they see that and they go, oh, these people know what they're doing. Because <laughs> they have no way to judge the paint. They can tell if you got it on the window, but other than that, they have no idea if you're doing a good job or not, right? <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Which is then when you make a game, what you want to make sure is that people, the first thing that they're seeing when they see your game is they see something of like, oh, this is enough quality. This is enough value that I should go in. I think you're doing a shitty job on the other side or you're going to play stuff later, but it always cemented in my head of like, you have to make sure like people often don't know. And once you start playing, they know, but like, how do you express that to somebody? How do you express that value of, oh, hey, it's worth your time. It was easier at Valve because everyone would give Valve's games a shot. Like for now, Anna Cruz is it's like, we're starting from zero, which is both fun and terrifying, right? But like, those are the kind of things I think about. So like every job has given me some value or something, right? Mm. But with also, Anna Crucis, also, sorry. Also you, realize, you, do, also, you don't want to paint houses for a living. Why not? My dad does it. It's hard work. Oh, it is a lot of hard work. I've done it's it. It's hard yeah. work, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people <laughs> who are good at it, that's a real skill. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's hard work. I also, I used to, I used to work at a company that we dug ditches and, like literally dug ditches. Like we would do waterproofing for homes or lift up homes and move them, like physically the home, put it on the back of a truck and move it. Like those are hard jobs, man. You do not want to be doing those for a living. Well, you end up pretty jacked from doing that sort of stuff. I'm yeah, trying to imagine you all jacked up from no, painting and No, you're ditches. just tired, just falling asleep all the time. <laughs> it's hard work, man. I have total respect for, like I've, I've done those, I've poured cement. Um, like I had all those jobs through college and it, when people, when we say, talk about like crunching on Left 4 Dead, it's still not as hard as sitting out on a 90 degree day, drig, digging some trench so that we can lay some pipe down or something like that was just brutally hard. <laughs> so what was the, the worst crunch that you did then? Cause I've heard some horrible stories over the years. I mean, so left, the Left 4 Dead was uh, pretty extended at the end there. Um, the game, um, so a lot of this is self-imposed to be, to be clear. Like, it's just my nature. Um, I'm getting better at it. But like the Left 4 Dead, Left 4 Dead 1 was longer than that. There's a group of people that were, you know, like six months or something. And Crunch was sometimes just like, hey, we're gonna work Tuesdays and Thursday nights. Um, you know, orange box was kind of like that. And then maybe towards the end, it would be a couple months of, of more or, you know, six days a week or something. Um, but, you know, it's, that was a lot of self-imposed. I mean, I think the worst straight, like short burst was, I, I think I'd come back from Russia. We were going to CERT and it was like, I worked a 16 hour day, 16 hour day. And I still was jet lag. And then we went to CERT. And I remember driving home in my car on the freeway and being like, hey, I'm in a car. I should probably pay attention. I don't remember how I got here. Yeah, that was scary. Um, but it was like that. But it was like, it really was mainly self-imposed kind of 
um, really wanting to nail that out and hit that. And I know sometimes there's just dumb grunt work you have to do. And sometimes it's more finesse. When you're in the more finesse, you can't crunch your way through it, right? You can't, it's really hard to be really creative and really um, pulling in all those strands at once um, and crunching versus, hey, we just need to play test the game every day and make sure it's not crashing. Like that's easier, right? Mm. So has the, has the culture, uh, when you left, but was the culture relatively the same at Valve from the time you were there to the time you left? Did it stay? Oh, no, no. They, they had gotten much better. They'd gotten much, 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 much better. That's also why I'm hesitant to ever talk about it. And also because I think I'm one of the people who influenced the bad side of it. Um, no, um, it, had, it definitely had gotten much better. Because if you, if you think about it as, you know, my early days there, I shipped a whole bunch of stuff and then I didn't ship anything for a while. And it was during that period um, that also, like, uh, I think... The games of a serve games as a service had really hit home there and you can't just crunch all the time there because then you are literally just crunching all the time and so structurally you need to think of a better way to do it and we also stopped releasing retail retail is the curse right because you're working on love for dead 2 and you're like yeah we're going to ship this and GameStop is like hey when are you going to ship this and you're like it's may i don't know and they're like well no we need to know the exact day Oh, right. And then you're like, okay, it's going to be November 18th. The minute you do that, you've created crunch, right? And so if you remove retail release, you remove that. And so I think that's one of the best changes for the industry is so many people have just jettisoned the retail release and it's just made the world a lot better. And so that's why when you go over to like the Dota or CSGO or um, even you know TF2 then was you didn't have those retail releases driving those and you could be know a little bit better about how you did them that's a very valid point though um is, is there a particular reason why valve has moved more i mean from gaming because it seems like it's more about steam and hardware and ar vr uh is that just primarily because they just see the technological changes within the industry and where the industry is going i can't speak for anybody else i can speak for myself so I get done shipping. I don't think Portal 2 is the last thing that side we shipped. I think there's some DLC. Oh, definitely CSGO. Um, so working on CSGO, that's going to ship. To me, it's a clear thing of like, it's about competition. It's about a bunch of stuff. There's not, I'm not interested. The, the work that needs to be done for there is not that interesting to me. There's some other projects that are going up and down, but they go up and down. The Source 2 is in a weird spot, not really ready for a full first-person shooter game. Uh, Michael Abrash and Doug Church come up and be like, hey, you should come down and check out the VR stuff. And at this point, I'm driving Doug Church home every day from work just because then I could use the commuter lane. And even taking the 10 minutes out of the way to take him home is still quicker. Um, so I'm like, okay. And then I see VR, the, the room VR for the first time. And there's like a second experience in there. It's these spindle trees that go on forever. And I was just like, wow. I'm like, they're like, there's like 30 minutes more to the demo. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need to see 30 minutes more. Like, I just want to sit here for a while. And I was just thinking of like all the times that we've tried to put the player into the world, how we've not been able to do it in the way that I'm feeling right now. And this is before hands or anything else in there. It's just the view. And I'm like, I am really in this world in a way I've never been in this world before. I've never been a big VR person. I'm not a big technology person, but I was just like, just moved. 
And so then um, before he left, Abrash was like talking about like, hey, you know, so we don't know what we're quite doing yet with this technology and how to think about it. You know, do you want to kind of come down and and be that person for us, help us figure that out and help us talk to other developers and just see what's going on. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is really cool. I think, you know, I kind of want to kind of want to see this. And there were some ups and downs there that happened. Obviously, Abrash left, um, HTC came on board. And then there was a point of that where um, still really wasn't sure. And then it became clear with HTC that there's going to be this opportunity to create something that was really special and different and something I'd never been a part of. Um, and so, you know, first, again, I'm not a VR person. So I literally spent the first three months on the team sitting in a corner watching other people give demos and talk about it. And I just absorbed what they were talking about and how they talked about it. And I remember inviting my wife in and I said, hey, I'm going to go join this team officially and I'm going to help launch this thing. I'm going to have to be away from home for a while for this. Like this is, this is, I could tell like, I need to go out and, and find these people that are going to do the original demos and all of that. Like I'm the person who selected the, or found the people that we selected then to do the original set of demos and everything. I'm like, this is going to be, you know, I'm going to, this can be a lot of travel again. We had talked about, I'd done PR travel before. We talked about not doing that anymore. And, you know, she went through it and was really moved by it. And I said, Hey, you know, and the other thing is, this is a, this is a new platform. And I think we can define this platform differently if we start differently. And so if you notice the original demo that we did at GDC, there's no weapons in there. There's no violence in those. That was, I purposely chose people who didn't have that and do that because that's easy enough to come later. Those things will come later. I had already gotten to see an early version of like Arizona Sunshine and all that would come, but here's an opportunity to launch this platform and be something different. And so I took that. So now at that point, Alex is spinning up. I could have gone and work on Alex or I could have helped launch VR and work with outside developers. And so to me, it was clear, I would never have an opportunity to have this big of an impact than I do right now, helping VR launch and working with those outside developers and helping shape how we both think about this and also the openness of it. So my whole thing was like, we always shared everything. We shared everything with the other hardware developers. Um, we shared them with from Sony to everybody. I was always this open, here's what we're doing. Here's what's going on. Never hide anything. If you want to see something, we'll show it to you. I'll send headsets to everybody. Um, I always try to introduce other people to work with other people um, and just was always open and trying to have that kind of influence on that. So I didn't make a game that year. Didn't make a game for a couple of years, but I did that. And I think for me, that was a valid choice to not make a game, right? And so for my own personal choice, that's how I got there. Right. And for me, I, I was happy with that choice at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's fair enough, and it's completely valid. Uh, I think that's a good thing. But you're obviously very in tune with what's going on, and technology is changing all the time. So how in the world are you keeping your finger on the pulse when you are managing a company, you're <laughs> working on a game, you have a family, I suppose you have, I imagine you do have a life, so you've got to try and stay up with all this stuff at the same time, because it's critical. Yeah, so for like the Anacrusis, we decided, okay, this is the thing we're going after. Like, so it's about when defining the goals of the game early on and sticking with inside of there. So like we weren't gonna make something in VR. We were gonna make something that was a traditional um, 3D game. We're gonna make something that 
not to say we won't maybe explore something in the future, but whatever. But like, but like it's stop, grab a bunch of pieces and stop them from moving and just say, let's stop these from moving for a minute and concentrate on this. This is what we can do. So this idea about being social in the, uh, the online space has always been really important to me. Um, I'm older, but yet grew up with this in a way that a lot of people my age haven't. So they don't understand the, like, I have friends that I've never met that I've only played games with, but they're my friends as much as anybody else is my friend, right? Um, and so like, how do, you, how, how do we bring that forward? And so that, making that the goal and making it devoid of the, the technology around it. Cause you can, chasing to the technology is always a nightmare, right? Um, but leave that to other people. I don't ever wanna make hardware again myself. It's really hard. It's painful. You can't change it as much. You can't iterate as much. Um, so yeah. Good answer. Good answer. So with Anacrusis, because I know I know we've got to wrap up. So what's what's the plan with this game in the long run? So we launched it, and the idea was to launch it as rough as we could and still get people to play it. Because I wanted to do the thing where you don't give lip service to um, player feedback, but you actually get player feedback and you actually build a game based on that. Now, not in the crazy way of like, I'm going to have some influencer tell me what to do, but instead actually have people playing where you can collect the data as well as have them play it. Ends up, were we too early on the too rough? Uh, it was pretty rough. Uh, it's it crashy. There were some other problems. Like it was clear if you yelled at me during that, like if you yelled at me during that period, I was like, yeah, fair enough, man. Fair enough. Right. I'm an adult. I get it. But equally, a bunch of people did play it and gave us a bunch of feedback. And now we're at the point of like, it reviews positively, people are playing it, the community's growing. Um, it's really fun. It's in a really good spot. And now I want to do one last kind of step with it, and that's introduce mods. So in like in Left 4 Dead team, I was the person who worked with outside developers there. We're making mods and working with outside teams and making mods. And so I want to make sure that we do that here. And so it's embracing that. And so our next update that'll come out in June um, we'll have a mod kit for it, as well as some of the mods already being built for it. Um, and yeah, and go from there. And it's about, because for me, the social, being social and online game isn't just about in the game, but it's about everything around the game. So it is about the mods. It's about having that new player experience with something that your friend made or your friend making some wacky hat that you wear or whatever, like, right? And how do you allow that world to kind of all interact and everybody play together? and have a really fun place to play. So we started our Discord, discord.gg slash straybombay. Uh, and in there, um, we don't just play our game, we play other games. We play other co-op games and we play old source mods. Cause it's like kind of the two things, right? Mods and, and co-op games. We just play them together and we kick people out of there if you're a jerk. And we're just like, no, this is just gonna be this cool place. So we have like 5,000 people that you can just jump in and play a game with, not just our game, but any game. And so then, hey, our game better be able to work with that community because they're like a bunch of good people who like playing co-op games, who play games every week together, right? And so like, that's just a good test bed for us. And so now, um, now when I get, now if there's negative feedback about the game, I'm, I'm, I drill into it a little bit more because I'm like kind of curious of like, why isn't it landing? Because now I think it should be. Now I think we're there. Now I think the elements are there. I mean, sure, more content, of course, more enemies, of course, more weapons, of course. But I think the core of what's there is solid and really good. And so, yeah, that's what we're building every month-ish. We do a big update and then we do a smaller update in between. So we did our fourth big update and just did our 
what eighth update overall um, just this week. So this I, I suppose the aim with it is to turn it into this big, big platform in terms of as a, as a, I don't want to use the word service because it's not really a yeah, service. Yeah, like, there's a whole bunch of weird, bad words used around it. Instead, yeah. It's just, it's a fun world you want to hang out with. There's characters you want to be there with that you like. And you get to play in a bunch of different variety of things. Some of the stuff we create, some of the stuff the community creates. Mm. But do you only want to focus on that? Or at some point, do you kind of want to hand it over to the community and let them do do stuff and then you move on to something else? Or we want to expand know. out what those, yeah, we want to expand out what those mod tools are so they can do more and more with that game. And then where that ends up is kind of up to the community and we're really open to that. And then like, you know, future, whatever we do. But right now, the, the whole team, the whole company is just dedicated on this. And um, you know, if you go to the Discord, you can see us. It's just not me jumping in and interacting with the community, but you know, everybody on the team does that. Yeah. And it's fun because then it really does feel like you're doing something with the community and you're really listening to feedback and growing. Valid, valid. Um, I know you got to get this is this is work time, so I'll let you go. But um, if anyone wants to keep up to date with you and and the company, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, the best place to go is discord.gg slash stray Bombay. Um, and that's just discord.gg and then stray Bombay smash I'll, together. I'll put the link um, in the description. Yeah, yeah, that is that is the place where most of the communication is going or or hit me up on Twitter. My DMs are open. It's just my name, Chet Falsak. Or just email me at chat at stray Bombay. I'm always happy to chat with anybody. I'm always open to sit down and talk with whoever. I, I appreciate it. You do very nice kind. You do, you do very nice conversations with people. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Um, okay, well, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. Bye.